Okay, there you go. There you go. It's like a miracle. <laughs> All right. That's good. That's good. So I was saying, when I was growing up, um, I used to believe that everyone in the church has it together. I mean, every time I go to church and I see people dressed up to church, I really thought that the people have been elevated to a different kind of spirituality. They are elevated to a different kind of holiness. Well, I was wrong. Because I guarantee it, if you're hearing this for the first time, I guarantee it, none of us, no one inside the church has their stuff together. Why? Because we are all struggling. We're all in the same situation. We are struggling with sin. No one is perfect except Jesus. Now, you might be thinking that you have overcome those big stuff like cheating and lying and stealing those big stuff. But what about those hatred and jealousy and, and all those stuff, small stuff? See, we are all on the same situation. We're all struggling. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. This is the third installment to our series, The Lord's Prayer. We're centering on forgive us our debts. So the obvious question now is, why do I have this debt? How did I incur this debt? How do I pay this debt? And if I cannot pay this debt, what happens to me? Now, as of late 2023, American households, you know, American households, has a debt of amounting to $17.5 trillion. We are all in debt. Average households, that, that means every average families, at least have $104,215 debt. Are you listening? We are in debt. Now, according to these statistics, average mortgage debts is about 244498 per household. That includes me. Average auto loan is about 23792 That's us. Average, um, average mortgage, oh, sorry, credit card debts is about $6,088. So my point is that we are all in debts. In fact, automatically, this debt, the national debt, is carried automatically to our children even though they're still growing and trying to learn, but they are passed on to our children. In fact, if, he, if you say, Pastor, I don't have a debt, no, the moment you use your credit card, it's debt. We are all in debt. So I think, here's the thing. If you manage your finances well, if you are thrifty, if you can really spend less, you will be able to pay your debts financially. But what about spiritual debt? How do you pay your spiritual debt? What happens when you're not paying your spiritual debt to God? So Jesus answers this dilemma in Luke chapter 18. He said, there's two men who went to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, another is a tax collector. If you're not familiar with the language, a Pharisee is someone who is so religious, so strict, and they are religiously obeying the law. That's a Pharisee. The Pharisee is the paragon of righteousness. When you talk about righteousness in the first century, talk about the Pharisees. So a Pharisee went to the temple to pray. But there's another one, a tax collector. What is a tax collector? A tax collector is someone who collects taxes for the Roman government. 
He's not collecting taxes for the Jewish people. He's collecting taxes for the enemy of the state, which is the Roman government. So in the eyes of the Jews, a tax collector is a traitor. Is a traitor. So again, two men went to the temple to pray. Both want to reach out to God. One is a Pharisee, another tax, tax collector. And their prayers are different. Their prayers doesn't resemble the Lord's prayer. The Pharisee went, had, went ahead first. He said this, Luke 18. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He was probably looking at the back and was looking at the tax collector. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Let me break this down for you. What he's saying, <clears throat> excuse me. What he's saying is that he's giving thanks to God because he's able to fulfill his obligations. Obligations. An average Jew prays three times a day. One in the morning, one at noon, one in the evening. An average Jew spends fasting on occasions. There are several occasions in the Jewish calendar. But this guy claims he fasts twice a week. That is tough. I mean, this guy spends two days in a row, or maybe spread out in a week, but two days a week just to fast. And not only that, he says he pays his tithes. What is a tithe? Tithe is a temple tax. That means he pays tax twice. He pays the government the tax, and he pays tithes to the temple. He pays twice. I mean, this guy is a paragon of righteousness because he fulfills his obligation. Now, this Pharisee's understanding is that righteousness is about a certain kind of checklist. That when he came to the temple, he claims to have checked all the boxes. He wasn't there to ask for grace or mercy. He was there to give a report of his spiritual progress. Now, the tax collector prayed differently. Somehow, it resembles the Lord's prayer. Now, listen very closely. Matthew, Luke 18, verse 13, the tax collector said, the Bible said, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, both of these guys are not inside the temple. These guys are in the temple courts, open air, open space. But this tax collector is the, at the very back. Not at the very back there, okay? You're not the tax collectors. But in the temple, they're in the, at the back of the very temple courts. The tax collector was beating his breast. That's a sign of, of guilt and shame. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to look at God. He was saying, I am a sinner. Now, what's interesting to me is that this guy knew he's guilty because he's doing the big stuff. He's probably corrupt. He's stealing from the taxes. But the Pharisee was, was praying a different kind of prayer. He's not doing the big stuff, and he thinks he's good enough. So both of these men prayed but according to Jesus, at the very end of this passage, only one went home justified. And if you're thinking it's the Pharisee, you're wrong. The one who went home justified was the tax collector. Why? Shouldn't Jesus, shouldn't God be pleased that this, tax, this Pharisee was doing everything, all in the law, just to be righteous? Shouldn't God be pleased that this Pharisee was doing everything to please God? 
Now, let me tell you why. Why he's not justified. Here's why. Because fasting, praying, tithing, reading your Bible, going to church, giving, doing acts of kindness, these are called spiritual formation. They shape our spirituality. But even though these are spiritual formation and, sh- and shape our spirituality, it means nothing to God when we come to Him with pride. It means absolutely nothing to God when we come to Him like it's an accomplishment for us. You see, the Pharisee came to the temple to pray. Prayer is a form of worship. But his prayer doesn't sound like worship. His prayer sounds like an employee at the end of the day coming to his boss and saying, I've done the accomplishments. I've done everything that you asked for. Here's my report. That's the Pharisee praying. It doesn't sound like worship. What he missed in a checklist was an acknowledgement of his spiritual condition. Listen, in front of a holy God, we are all beggars of grace. That's why we pray, forgive us our debts. Do you feel confident that every time you come to God in prayer, do you feel like you've been a good person this week? You've been consistently praying, not just for food. You've been reading your Bible at least once or twice a week. You've been giving actively to the church online. And you've been doing, you know, all this stuff. And you feel like, I think I'm good. I think I've, I've ticked all the boxes that God is requiring from me. In other words, you've got your stuff together. But what if I tell you that every time we pray, regardless of who you are, Every time we pray, we are in the same category of the Pharisee and the tax collector. See, the tax collector is obvious. His sins are huge, major, big. But the sins of the Pharisee is subtle. He, he failed to acknowledge that he is coming to God in prayer with pride. Pride is subtle. The Pharisee thinks that he's good. But here's the question. How good is good enough? That's why we pray, forgive us our debts. I was studying this sermon the whole week, and I was fascinated, totally fascinated, by Jesus' choice of word. He used the word debt. Although in Luke chapter 11, he used the word sin, but debt, he used the word debt. Now, I think if we take it very seriously, we will be able to really understand what this, this debt is all about. And for us to do that, I, wanna, I want you to transport yourself. Transport yourself to the Old Testament in the time of Exodus. People just crossed the sea. They went to the wilderness. They camped there. And Moses gave them instruction because God will appear on top of the mountain. They will see God face to face, so to speak. And God gave Moses an instruction to put a boundary marker at the foot of Mount Sinai. And tell the people that they cannot cross the boundary. And the moment they cross the boundary, they will be killed instantly. Why? Because God is a holy God. So after three days, God came down to the top top of the mountain. He appeared before the people. It It was a glorious sight to see. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And then Moses came down and he told people that God is holy. God is holy means you cannot just approach God to worship Him whenever you want, however you want. There's a protocol that must be followed because God is holy. So the tabernacle was built. The Ark of the Covenant was created also. It was put inside the uh, tabernacle. And they were told that the presence of God that they saw on top of Mount Sinai 
will dwell in the tabernacle. God's actual presence will be in the tabernacle. That means they're living next to God. God's practically a neighbor. And that's awesome. But, but not only that, the problem is they have to maintain a certain kind of sanctity. Because if God is holy and they're living next to God, they also must be holy. How are they going to do that? Enter the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is very fascinating. The first five chapters is devoted to answer the question, how does one become unclean? There are many things, many ways we become unclean. We eat unclean food. We, we, we have leprosy or skin diseases. We, women would contract your monthly period or you would give childbirth. These are ways you can become unclean. The following next chapters, the seven chapters, were devoted to answering the question, what to do when you become unclean? And it also talks about sacrificing an animal, giving it to the priest, going to the tabernacle, and be forgiven. That's the process of atonement. But as long as they are clean, they can stay in God's sacred space. The tabernacle is God's sacred space. The camp is God's sacred space. As long as they're not unclean, they can stay within God's sacred space. The question is, how are they going to stay in God's sacred space? They have to be clean. If they fail, they have to be clean. If they sin, they have to be clean. This process of cleansing in the language of Leviticus, it's called atonement. Atonement. Atonement is when a person admits his guilt, brings a sacrifice, goes to the tabernacle, and asks the priest for forgiveness. That's when he's cleansed. That's when he goes through the process and his sins are expunged. So think about this. Atonement is about admitting your guilt, bring a sacrifice, go to the temple, meet a priest. That's atonement. You got to have all those things to be able to be forgiven. Without the four elements, there's no forgiveness. And if there's no forgiveness, one remains unclean. And if the people remains unclean, there will come a time when God will pour out his wrath and leave the place because God is holy. That is the understanding of the Jews in, in the time of Moses. So when Jesus came, what he did and taught was radical. Why radical? Because he taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. What are, what are we missing here? Why is this radical? Because in the Old Testament, you have to go through a process. Admit your guilt. Sacrifice, temple, priest. What Jesus is simply saying is that you don't have to do all those things. You just have to pray, forgive us our debts. Jesus was skipping the process. He was telling us a shortcut, forgive us our debts. It's radical because Jesus taught us to skip the process. And by implication, what he's telling us is that sacrifice is no longer necessary. The priest is no longer necessary. The temple is no longer necessary. This sort of thing is a sacrilege. If you're a Pharisee and you're trying to obey every letter of the law and you hear Jesus talking about this, forgive us our debts, you'd say blasphemy. That can't be. The only way you would be forgiven is you bring a sacrifice, go to the temple, bring it to the priest. But Jesus does it differently. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus met a paralytic. He's got this withered hand. The hand is a little bit shorter than the other one. He cannot really use it properly. And he met this guy. 
And Jesus, instead of saying, be healed, get well, rise up, abra I, I don't know, abracadabra maybe, uh, heal, be healed. Instead of saying those things, Jesus said, now watch this, what Jesus said is very interesting. What Jesus said is, son, your sins are forgiven. Don't you find it odd that Jesus would say this as if he understood that the real spiritual problem of this guy is not this physical arm, but the spiritual condition of being a sinner. And the Pharisees around Jesus caught that. They think, hey, hang on. Only, you can only be forgiven if you bring a sacrifice to the temple with the priest. You cannot just dispense grace. You cannot just dispense forgiveness. Wait, hang on. No one can forgive except God. One, one interesting thing about it is that this happened on a Sabbath. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heard the prayer and he grants forgiveness without the guy going through the process just like that. The question is, on what authority did Jesus change the process of atonement? On what authority was he doing this? Now, to answer this question, you have to go back to the images of Egypt, slavery, Exodus, and Sabbath. That's right, Sabbath. You have four images here. Egypt and slavery, both are bad things. And then Exodus is simply the crossing of the Red Sea going to the promised land, or the wilderness first, and then the promised land, and then Sabbath. What is Sabbath exactly? Sabbath is the image of rest. God created, on the seventh day, he rested, Sabbath. So Sabbath is the image of rest. Sabbath is the image of freedom from slavery. So the idea of Israel coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, going into the Promised Land is Sabbath. Sabbath is the marker that reminds every Israelite that he was a former slave and that his freedom has been paid for. That is Sabbath. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 15 says, You shall remember that you were slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord Yahweh, your God, commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Sabbath is about God's salvation. It reminds everyone, every Israelite, that God saved them from Egypt, from slavery. Now this is the, is the big concept. If the temple is the image of entering God's sacred space, sacred space, temple, Sabbath is the image of entering God's sacred time. Let me do it again. Let me say that again because these concepts are not too, too easy. If the temple is about entering God's sacred space, Sabbath is about entering God's sacred time. Both are sacred. In fact, that's why... Entering the sacred space illegally can cause you death. Breaking the Sabbath can also cause you death because they are both sacred. But in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees caught the disciples breaking the Sabbath. The disciples were harvesting the fields on Sabbath day. And in the interpretation of the Pharisees, this is sacrilege. They have to be stoned to death. They broke the Sabbath. Now here's one more interesting thing. When Jesus healed the paralytic guy I was talking about, it was also on the Sabbath day. It was on the same day that his disciples were gathering from the fields. They're breaking the Sabbath. So if the Pharisees were correct, 
in their interpretation of the law, Jesus himself violated Sabbath. The question is, on what authority did Jesus overrule Sabbath? Now remember, if Sabbath is about entering God's rest, atonement is the fact that you've been qualified to enjoy that rest because your sacrifice has been accepted. That means your debts were canceled, your sins were forgiven. So in response to that accusation of the Pharisees, Jesus responded in Matthew 12, verse 6. He said, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. For the Son of Man is Lord of Sabbath. Now, now this is interesting. Let me break this down for you. Every time the Old Testament refers to God, it refers to Yahweh and no one else. Every time the Old Testament talks about God, there's no other God but Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh is the creator of the whole world. The Bible said that on the seventh day, God rested. Sabbath. It is Yahweh. Sabbath. So the term Lord of the Sabbath is literally Yahweh. And yet with audacity and full confidence, Jesus claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. If you're a Pharisee and you're listening, you'd say blasphemy. You cannot be the Lord of the Sabbath. Only one God is the Lord of the Sabbath, the creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus claims to be. Not only that, Jesus claims to be the Son of Man. In the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is a heavenly figure who receives a kingdom. He's the Son of Man. Not only that, Jesus also claims that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the creator of the world. Not only that, he also said that Jesus is greater than the temple. Listen to that. Think about it for a moment. What does it mean that there is something greater than the temple? Who is greater than the temple but the presence who dwells in the temple? See, the temple means nothing without the presence of God in there. So what Jesus is claiming is that he is the very presence of God greater than the temple. We're asking, on what authority was Jesus overruling the Sabbath? If you're a Pharisee and you hear Jesus this way, you'd think either Jesus is not making any sense or he's demon-possessed. Either way, you will not take him seriously. I mean, this is blasphemy to say the least. That's why the prayer, forgive us our debt, is radical. It is radical and revolutionary. I'm going to bring two verses to you and I'm going to put it side by side. I want you to pay attention to the nuance and the verbiage, the language. Genesis chapter 2 and Hebrews 10. I want you to compare this and, and see and listen to the cadence. Genesis 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. It's talking about creation. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And then he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Well, good. So the, the, the major thing here is he finished his work, then he rested. He finished his work, and then he rested. Now, listen to Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Did you hear the familiar words? On the seventh day, God finished and rested, Sabbath. But what the author is saying, when he Phrase the words after he offered, he sat down. That's the same language, but more imagery. Jesus, when he finished his work, he rested. Sabbath. 
Are you following me? That means what he's telling us is that this passage, if you read them side by side, you will realize that Jesus has fulfilled the very essence of Sabbath. What he's saying is that atonement has been perfected, it's been completed, it's been finished. That's why on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He did something. He accomplished something. And he said, it is done. It is finished. Hebrews 10, verse 12. And then he rested. Sabbath. The prayer doesn't end with forgive us our debt. It continues with as we forgive our debtors. Can you repeat after me, please? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, you are making a bold claim. What this means is that you cannot pray this prayer until you have settled your affairs with others. That means you cannot come to God and ask for forgiveness until you have forgiven others. In fact, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5, 23, if you're offering a gift at the altar and then you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, this is so clear. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Before you even worship God and remember something, you got to settle it first. Be reconciled. See, reconciliation is conditional to our petition to God to cancel our debts. Let me put this in practical terms. That means you cannot pray, forgive us our debts if you have unsettled dispute with your spouse. Are you listening? If you fought last night and you haven't spoken about it yet and you're asking God for forgiveness, forget it. It will not be heard because forgiveness is conditional to our forgiveness of others. That means our worship attendance today means nothing to God as long as you keep harboring this hate against someone in the church, for sure. You see, you have to be reconciled in order to worship God before, not after the worship. See, in the same gospel, Jesus also flips this scenario and talks about what if you are the one who was offended. Because the first one is if you offended someone. What if you're the offended person? What's going to happen? Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's, it's going to be between you and him, not with you know, a bunch of friends who's going to support you in your cause. It's going to be between you and him. It says, if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. That means when you have discussed this offense and he realizes his mistake and asks for forgiveness, you have gained a brother, which is good. Now, have you ever wondered where Jesus was getting this teaching? Guess no further. Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly. That is the language of what Jesus is saying. Go to your brother and ask him about this sin. Deal with him, reason frankly, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And there's a caveat. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. There's a stamp in here, I'm the Lord your God, as if God is saying, 
I have this approval. You've got to do this. This is doing in my name. Reconciling with your brother. Let's break this passage down. When you read, you shall not hate. Because Leviticus 19 starts with that. You shall not hate your brother. You should be thinking of Cain and Abel. Brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother. But before he murdered his brother, he hated his brother. He hated his brother. So when you hear this word, you shall not hate, think about Cain and Abel. Hate turned to first degree murder. First degree. It was premeditated. It was planned. Now, if you think about it, if you think about Cain and Abel, you have to think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Because the the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector is a softer version of Cain and Abel. What exactly is Cain and Abel's story? Cain offered the sacrifice to God. Abel offered the sacrifice to God. In their sacrifice, Cain was rejected. Abel was accepted. And he became jealous and he hated his brother and he killed his brother. The Pharisee and the tax collector went also to the temple to pray. Both were offering prayers to God. But Jesus said only one was accepted, the other was rejected. It was the tax collector, not the Pharisee. So if you think about it, Cain and Abel's story is a softer version of the story of Pharisee and the tax collector. They were both offering sacrifice to God. Only one was accepted. And in both circumstances, God is the one who decides which one to forgive, which one to accept. It is God who justified the tax collector and not the Pharisee. Now, if you're a Jew and your idea of righteousness is about checklist, do this tithes, do this fast, do this read your Bible, do this, you know, checklist. And you're looking at the Pharisee and you would think twice. The Pharisee deserves to be justified because he's righteous. Not the tax collector, the Pharisee. The story didn't say that the Pharisee hated the tax collector. But if you understand the first century culture, you will read between the lines. The Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees hate the tax collectors. They hate tax collectors. They wouldn't have table fellowship with tax collectors. They avoid tax collectors like a plague. They would not even shake hands with tax collectors because for them, tax collectors are sinners. They're in the same category. See, the Pharisee who prayed in the temple puts the tax collector in the category of prostitutes, prostitutes, adulterers, extortioners. He definitely hates the guy. But based on Leviticus 19, the Pharisee thought he had no sin to confess. He had no forgiveness to ask. But he failed to realize that he broke the law. What's that law? He didn't love his brother. He failed. See, some people would would just go straight into the prayer and give his accomplishments and not even mention, not even feel that he also needs grace. Why? Because he thinks... He has done all the accomplishments. He has ticked all the checklist. But you see, you cannot come to God with pride. You have to come to God in humility. Leviticus 19 says, you shall reason with your neighbor lest you incur sin. How? Because when hate takes its final form, when hate ripens, when hate is acted, acted upon, it becomes murder. Do not be naive to thinking that since you are a Christian for a long time, you're not hating anymore. 
I'm sure you would not admit it today. But you see, if you are in a relationship, if you have a spouse, if you meet people, it's guaranteed you will have different opinions, you will disagree, and if your serotonin and oxytocin level drops, I guarantee you, you will feel hate in different degrees. The reason why loving your neighbor is not an option is if, if, if it was an option, we would easily choose not to love, not to forgive. If you're married, and if you're in a relationship, listen, loving your significant other is not an option, which also means forgiving your significant other is not an option. Would you say amen to that? It's never an option. It's a must. You have to do it. I know there are couples who don't talk for a week, sometimes a month. Uh, sorry to my mom, but my parents did that for many years. I hope my mom's not listening. <laughs> but there are couples who do that. You cannot do that. And probably you'd say, Pastor, we're not really hating each other. We're not fighting each other. We're just doing something else. You see, Apostle Paul tells us something that's, that's very crucial to relationships. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Listen. He said, in your anger, do not sin. It's possible to be angry and not sinning. It's possible. But it's also possible to be angry and sin if you act upon that sin. So he said, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. What he's saying here is that the moment you feel the hate, the moment you choose to stay in that hate, the moment you decide to maintain that hate, we are creating a conducive environment for the enemy to deceive us. A foothold. As a matter of fact, I think, the moment Adam and Eve saw the serpent and heard him talking, that's a red flag. Because normal animals don't talk, right? The moment they saw these guys crawling on the tree and talking, Adam and Eve, I think what they should have done is they should have hacked the serpent to pieces. I mean, they should not have given him an opportunity to open his mouth and deceive them. And you may be saying, Pastor, we're not fighting. We love each other, but sometimes he just, he just gets on my nerves. So what we just do is just, we just forget it. We just try just to ignore it. We just try to sweep the issues under the rug. You see, sweeping under the rug, silent treatment, ignoring the issue, is exactly what the devil's foothold is all about. Do not give him the right to be there. Do not give him the opportunity to whisper doubts in your ears. Do not let him control your jealousy. You should be listening to the Holy Spirit, not to the devil. Listen, reconciliation is the prerequisite to our petition. Forgive us our debts. Remember the conversation on the cross about Jesus Christ and there were other two thieves on the cross? One of the criminals said, uh, I'm going to translate it on my own. One of the criminals said, come on, man, talking to Jesus, you're the Messiah, you have power, come down, show us your power, rescue us. That's what he's basically saying. And the other guy, who is the same criminal on the other side of the cross, said, you shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. 
we are guilty. We have sinned, but this guy in the middle, he's innocent. And then he leaned to Jesus, and then he said this. Luke chapter 23, verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When I read this conversation, I can't help but think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both criminals on the cross were asking Jesus something. The same thing with the Pharisee and the tax collector. One is telling Jesus what to do. Save us. Come down. Save us. Show your power. The other one knows he's guilty and is asking Jesus just to be remembered. The only thing he asked is, remember me. It's a way of saying, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me. But what is surprising to me is what Jesus said. His response was about Sabbath. You heard it right. His response was about Sabbath. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish tradition, a new day begins at sunset. This, this conversation probably transpired hours before Jesus died on the cross, which is before sunset. So when Jesus said today, what he meant was after sunset, it's going to be Sabbath day. It's going to be Saturday. So when he said today, Sabbath day, you will be with me in paradise. Now, when Jesus said today you will be with me in paradise, we're actually going back to the, to the, to the language of creation. Sabbath day is the seventh day. Sabbath day is about entering God's sacred time today. And when you talk about the Garden of Eden, you're talking about God's sacred space, paradise. In fact, the Greek word for paradise is garden, literally garden. So what Jesus is saying is that, is that you are going to be with me today in the paradise. The interesting thing is that this guy never even said, I am so sorry. And he did not enumerate his sins. All he said is, Father, uh, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. This is fascinating. The question is, on what authority can Jesus guarantee it? On what authority was Jesus guaranteeing and dispensing grace and forgiveness to this man? On what authority is Jesus claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath? If there's anything, I, I can assure you this. Because Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice, according to Hebrews 10 verse 12. He is the last high priest. He became the very temple of God in the flesh. All conditions for atonement has been fulfilled in him. And only on the basis of his death on the cross can we ask, forgive us our debts. So when we pray, forgive us our debts, we are appealing to God's mercy. We are appealing to God's favor. We are appealing to Jesus who has the authority to forgive because he has fulfilled all the conditions of atonement. All the conditions of atonement. He became the perfect sacrifice. He became our high priest. He became the very temple of God. And therefore, he can dispense grace to whomever he wants. Our desire and our hope is that every time we come to God in prayer, 
we will be forgiven of our debts. We're not just talking about the financial debts. We're talking about our spiritual debts. You can never pay your spiritual debts. And the only way you can be accepted before God is if He cancels your debt. Just like that. Just like that. We are all in the same category. We are the thief of the cross. We are the tax collectors. We are able. All we have to do is to pray, forgive us our debts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the reminder that when we pray, we don't need the temple, we don't need another priest, we don't need to give another sacrifice. When we pray, we just have to admit our guilt and say, forgive us our debts. I don't know the spiritual condition of everyone here, but you can, you can see us where we are. You can, see, you can see where we are struggling. You can see our weaknesses. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come to us, to empower us, to help us realize that we have, we have an enormous help from you. That you can strengthen us so that we can fight off the temptation and not fall into sin. Father, we pray that you not only forgive us, but you empower us so that we can please you in everything that we do, in every speech, in everything that we say, in every, in every thought that we think of. Our prayer is that we will please you. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name.